In Matthew 21, we left it, and the Lord Jesus really had entered this final climactic week which would lead to the cross. And he had entered Jerusalem to the acclamation of the crowds. We know that the city was overflowing with people due to Passover, and many more had come traveling with the Savior. And so hundreds of thousands came together and cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David. And by their words, at least, the crowds had hailed Jesus as the King, as Messiah, as Deliverer, as Savior. And he accepted the praise of the people as he processed through the city before finally coming to the temple. Everything about his entrance declared that this king, that his kingdom would be different. There was no pomp, there was no glory, there was no earthly majesty, as it were, but he was the king of kings. And Jesus would return to Jerusalem the next day, and in an act that demonstrated the nature of his kingdom, the type of king that he is, he swept through the temple in righteous anger, and he cleanses the temple. He, he says it's become a den of thieves. It should have been a, a house of prayer. And what we find is that as a result of that, the religious leaders accelerated their plans to kill him because they hated him, and they hated his message. They, they hated the way that he exposed them, and so they want him dead. And then we come to this this next incident with regards to the fig tree. Now, it's interesting, in Mark 11, there are two incidents that are recorded with the fig tree. The first on the day that Jesus cleanses the temple, and then another on the next day when he returned. And what we find is that Matthew summarizes both of those into one account because he's focusing on the lessons rather than the chronology. And so in verses 18 to 22, we have this incident. Now, friends, you need to know that the Lord Jesus came as king. The ruler that was promised throughout the Old Testament, the king to come who would be great David's greatest son. He would be the eternal king. The psalmist would write of him that he would be the promised king who would reign supreme, that he would be sovereign over all nations, that he would subdue all his enemies under his feet. The prophets who said that this king would have the government upon his shoulder and would be none other than God himself, the rightful ruler. Now, the Jews were looking for an earthly king. They wanted earthly deliverance. They wanted a, a king to come in and get rid of their enemies, to, to deal with Rome and unite the people and, and bring material prosperity. And when the Lord Jesus came... The thing was, he didn't conquer the Romans. Instead, he exposed the religious practices and the leaders of the Jews. He didn't battle the, the occupying force, but he confronted the hypocrisy and the error amongst the religious elite. He didn't speak of, of revolution, as it were, but righteousness. He didn't just clear out the Romans. Instead, he cleared out the temple. It was not what they were hoping for. It was not what they were expecting from the Messiah that they had designed in their own minds. And so even today we see the reality that the Jewish people have, have very little, if no interest in Jesus as Messiah, the fulfillment of the Scriptures. They're still looking for an earthly Messiah of their own making. That's a tragedy. They don't want a Savior who will confront their sin and deliver them from it. You know, after the people had acclaimed Jesus as king, he does two things which demonstrate his sovereign authority. 
one we've considered already, he cleansed the temple, and then here he curses this fig tree. Now, friends, as the Savior cleansed the temple, he condemned the man-made religion and the corruption of worship. When he curses the fig tree, that condemnation extends to the people as a whole, to the nation. And for his enemies, it was inconceivable that Messiah will condemn them so they desire to put him to death. They would not have Jesus. They rejected the King of Kings. So let's unpack this lesson and what we see here from this fig tree a little bit further. Look at verse 18, if you will. Now in the morning as he returned to the city, he was hungry. You know, friend, I think that's such a, a lovely inclusion in the Scriptures, that little detail about the Lord Jesus. It's such a, a gracious reminder about his person that he felt hunger. He knew what it was to be hungry in other places, to be tired. And whether it was the, the traveling that took its toll or the rigor of prayer and the spiritual intensity of what he was facing, he wants something to eat. And it's a, a stunning mystery that the Son of God, fully God, the King of kings, the, the Lord of lords, the one who upholds the universe, was also fully man and condescended to know what it was to be hungry like you and me. But you know, we must not think of this incident that he curses the tree in frustration. That is certainly not the case. His actions are always measured and right. And here he uses this as the opportunity to teach the disciples another lesson, another vital lesson concerning the gospel, the kingdom, and his mission. And so he stops by this fig tree, verse 19, seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. You say, well, you know, what's interesting about that? What's happening there? Well, there's nothing unusual about a fig tree by the road in that part of the world. It was unusual for it to have leaves in April, which is the time that this is happening. You see, the fig trees would bloom twice a year, and usually the first fruits would be in May-June time. But this tree looked as though it could offer a solution to the Savior's hunger because it looked as though it was in bloom. But when he came to it, it's got nothing but leaves. The tree looked good, and although it had leaves, it had no fruit. Now, in Mark 11, it tells us that it was not the season of figs when this is happening. And it's interesting because there is great significance around the fig tree, particularly for the nation of Israel. Let me just uh, take a little bit of time to explain that a little further for you. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 8, verses 7 to 8, God had laid out the beauty of the land and he said, the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. And the delicious fruit of the fig was a mark of promised abundant goodness to the people. In Numbers 13, it's interesting that when the spies go and look into the land, they bring their report back. And one of the things that they say specifically is that the land is rich because there are many fig trees. So in the Old Testament, fruitful fig trees are a symbol of the richness and the prosperity of the land. The absence or barrenness of fig trees is a symbol of poverty and judgment on the land. Now, these types of fig trees that the Lord Jesus would be facing here could grow to over 20 foot high, 20 foot wide. They gave great shade. 
And as I said, they bore fruit twice a year. But the key thing that you need to remember in all of this is this point. The fruit always comes before the leaves. The fruit always comes before the leaves. So if you saw a tree with leaves, you would expect fruit. But as the Lord Jesus comes to this tree, he sees the leaves, but there's no fruit. It is a fruitless tree. It looked good. It was ahead of the others, but actually it was barren. And so the Lord uses this as a, an opportunity a, a, to give a parable, this opportunity afforded by the fruitless tree to illustrate vital spiritual truth. And when he finds no fruit, he says in verse 19, let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately, right in front of them, the tree withers. Can you imagine? Instantly, the tree withers and dies. Now, in Mark 11, it says that the Savior cursed the tree, literally pronounced its destruction, pronounced its death. Christ's word ended the tree. The tree didn't just begin to die, it withered right in front of them. They say, well, what is the meaning of all that? What's the meaning of this parable? Well, the fruitless tree was a picture of the spiritual barrenness of Israel at this time. The leaves are the symbolic uh, sort of representation of Israel's religious activity, but without any genuine fruit. There was no real knowing of God. So they had a form of godliness, but without power. And beneath the leaves, there was, there was no grace, as it were. There was no faith. There was no love. There was no humility. There was no spirituality. There was no readiness and willingness to receive Messiah. You know, God hates profession without practice. And so when Jesus swept into the temple, he condemned their corrupted and empty religion. And now as he curses the fig tree, he condemns their fruitlessness. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? By their fruits, you will know them. Fruit is always the indicator of salvation because it's the outworking of knowing him and being united to him. Do you remember Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. There's got to be that union, that knowing of Jesus. And the Savior is saying that all the, the outward empty religion wouldn't save them and they face condemnation because they rejected him. They rejected the true Messiah, the only way they could ever know God. You see, there is no life. There is no fruit. There is no true salvation apart from Jesus. You know, religion cannot save. They, they remain lost without him. You know, Isaiah 29, 13, Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. There's a condemnation of the way in which those things are gone. And you know, Jerusalem was at the center of all of these demonstrations of apparent holy zeal and ritual and religious activity. And yet, it was totally fruitless. Totally fruitless. It was the situation then, it continues to be the situation now. All the man-made laws, all the externals, all the, the vain repetition, all the doing of religion before men, to be seen of men, to be acclaimed by men. 
It's all leaves, but no fruit because they reject the truth of God. They reject Messiah. They've denied the revelation of God in their own Messiah. You know, it's fascinating when you read elsewhere in the the Gospels, Jesus often used this illustration. In Luke 13, Jesus spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after that you can cut it down. So the plea in that parable was just for a little more time, a little more opportunity, you know, a a little more just to to grow and to, to be fruitful. And the Lord gave them time. And then in AD 70, the Romans came and sat the city of Jerusalem and totally destroyed the temple. The Lord was patient, but there was no fruit. And so the consequences came, and they're still evident today. You know, all of this was was devastating to the Jewish leaders and really to the people. And the leaders, they hated him so much. They they hated his message. They want him dead. He'd, He'd exposed them. He'd said that they were spiritually fruitless and sinful and condemned and under judgment. You know, the Messiah they should have worshipped. They want death. They had ignored the warning of John the Baptist in Matthew 3 concerning how Messiah will come in judgment. His winnowing fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And so the fig tree is a picture of the barrenness of disobedience, the rejection of God's Messiah. Do you know, all the way through the Old Testament, there were these warnings. You know, Deuteronomy 28, the whole passage deals with the issue of Israel being blessed or cursed. What's the defining factor? Obedience to the law. Verses 1 to 2 of Deuteronomy 28, it shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments which I command you today that the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord. And it goes on and it says all these amazing blessings in the city, in the field, in the produce of the land, the livestock, against all their enemies. Do you know the reality is there? That these promises were made, but the thing was, of course, that if there was disobedience, if there was disobedience, then there would be great trouble. And so that is made very clear. In verse 15, you have the warning later in Deuteronomy 28. It shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all of his commandments and his statutes, which I command you, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And so you you have all the way through the chapter the, the devastating consequences of rejecting the Lord and disobedience to his word. You know, it's also there in Isaiah. You see it there too. Isaiah 5. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. It's speaking of Canaan. He dug it up and cleared out its stones, removed enemies, planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the midst 
protective ceremonial social system, made a wine press in it. That's speaking of the sacrificial system. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. Disobedience. Follows the premise laid out in Deuteronomy. Obedience brings blessing, disobedience, judgment. The people disobeyed repeatedly. And those consequences continue today, even though Messiah has come. But friends, do you know something? Even still, God has preserved the Jewish people. And I believe he's not finished with them in his sovereign purposes. That's for another time. What lessons do we find here? What does the Lord teach the disciples and us here through this? Well, the first lesson is really very simple and obvious. Religion without knowing Christ won't save you. Religion without being reconciled to God in Christ, without the fruit of being united to him, will only lead you to condemnation. You know, it was true for the people then, it is true for every one of us as well. If we've got religious leaves, but we've got no fruit, then we're in a desperate state. You know, you need to be saved to have that, that new life that only Christ can give and the fruitfulness that comes from being in a relationship with him and united to him. And God will judge the religious. And without Christ, even the most religious person has got no hope. Do you know, one explains, is not every fruitless branch of Christ's visible church in an awful danger of becoming a withered fig tree? Beyond doubt, without holiness, repentance, faith, there will only be condemnation. Let us beware of any pride in church. Is not every fruitless professor of Christianity in awful danger of becoming a withered fig tree? There can be no doubt. As long as a man is content with the leaves of religion, with a name to live while he is dead, a form of godliness without power, his soul remains in great peril. So long as he is satisfied just with going to church or being called a Christian, while his heart is not changed and his sins not forsaken, every day he provokes God to cut him off without remedy. The fruit of the Spirit is the only sure proof that we are savingly united to Christ. And so I cry out to you this morning, listen to the warning. You know, do you have outward religion, but not Christ? Have you got leaves of pretense, but no fruit? Do you know, King Jesus deserves more than hollow worship and hypocritical religion. So the question is, where are you? Where is your heart? And I would urge you to be done with, with any empty form of religion and repent and trust the Savior. Know Christ for yourself. His perfect person, his saving work on the cross, his glorious resurrection, he is the only way that we can be delivered from the curse and the terrible wrath to come. That's the first lesson. Religion without Christ is useless. It will condemn you. You need to know Jesus Christ for yourself. And then the second lesson, and this is really the, the main one as we draw it to a close. The power of prayer, verses 21 to 22. Jesus says, assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed 
and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Now we look at that and we think, well, how does that follow the situation? What is the Lord saying there? How does this become a, an instruction in prayer? Well, notice, if you will, that the disciples marveled at the power of Jesus. He spoke and the tree literally withers before them. You know, they are in awe of the Lord Jesus Christ when they see how quickly this tree withers and it dies and it stays dead. You know, Matthew 21, 20, the disciples saw it. When they saw it, they marveled. How did the fig tree wither away so soon? And in turn, the Lord Jesus explains to them that they have access to the same power working on their behalf as they look to him and as they believe and as they call upon him. And in the context of this demonstration of power, the Lord Jesus says that if they pray believing, they will see great things done. And he uses hyperbole when he says about the, the mountains being removed and cast into the sea. You know, it's, it's not literal. In fact, it's very interesting because in Jewish literature, great rabbis and teachers were called rooters up of mountains. In other words, those with authority who could remove great obstacles and solve great problems and exercise great power, rooting up mountains became a metaphor for dealing with difficulties and dealing with seemingly impossible situations. Now, the Lord would tell them in the upper room in John 14, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And as in our text, the key is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, looking to his intervention, to his power. It's not faith in the things that you think should happen or faith in your own ideas or dreams or ambitions for yourself. Faith is believing and placing your confidence in the Lord as he has revealed himself in Scripture. And so to speak of having faith and doubting not is to trust that God is able to do what he says he will do. To take him at his word. And it's not about faith in ourselves. It's not even about faith in our faith, as it were. It is steadfast trust in the one who is the object of our faith. And to believe that he is able to do exceedingly abundantly. I think sometimes, friends, because of maybe some of the excesses, things like the word faith move and all that, you know, maybe those in our own position, we, we kind of shy away from these things. And we, we step back from praying, believing, because really, if we're honest, we don't expect God to work in the way that he can. And we become nervous about it, and we, we step back from these things of really crying out and seeking the Lord. You know, it's to believe that if something is consistent with the will of God, with the word of God, and the purpose of God, he will accomplish it, and nothing can stop him. You know, this power is accessed through believing prayer. Whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Now, of course, so easy, isn't it, to pluck that verse out of context and use it to apply to all manner of things. 
we must always see it within the wider picture of the teaching of Jesus on prayer. It's only as we ask, consistent with God's revelation of himself, consistent with the name of Jesus Christ, with his purpose, consistent in an unselfish way to the glory of God, that we can have that confidence that we will be heard and that God will answer. You see, to ask in the name of Christ is therefore to set aside our own will and to bow to the perfect will of God. And the Lord Jesus exhorts the need for persistence in believing prayer, faith that perseveres in prayer. You know, if we really believe in the power of God to do exceedingly abundantly, we will be persistent in calling upon him because we know that only he has the power and the resources to do what needs to be done. You know, we look at the state of the churches, look at the state of the nation, we can't change that. Only God can change that. And yet where is our earnestness and persistency in calling upon his name? You know, in the whole process of, of seeking him, the Lord is strengthening us, deepening our trust and our patience and our rest in him. We are being changed as we persist. You know, great faith says, I believe God. Even when I can't see the resources, even though I can't see how he can possibly work, I trust him. You know, sometimes we ask the Lord, don't we? And it feels as though, you know, we just get silence. You know, we, we wait and we pray and we ask again and again and it just seems as though he's, he's not there. And then after a, a few times, we really begin to doubt and we struggle and we lose that desire to, to keep going and maybe we give up. Do you know, maybe there are circumstances, maybe there are people who've been on your heart and you've prayed and prayed and prayed and there seems to be no movement. I just feel like giving up. But we must continue, friends. That's the challenge. To keep seeking, to keep wrestling, to keep persevering because we believe that God has got power to change even the most impossible situations. Because we need him. We need his power. We need his intervention. You know, what are we thinking if we, we think we can be about his work, about his business, about his, our daily lives to his glory without him? It's madness. We cannot do anything without him. Matthew 17, 20, you know, has the same lessons. Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. And the Lord was teaching the disciples if they had faith, just like a tiny mustard seed, it would start small, but as they persisted, it would grow, it would increase. The problem for the disciples on that occasion, and often for us, we start small and then we give up at the first hurdle. You know, there are so many things that the Lord has for us as his people, in our lives as individual believers, as a fellowship together that are ours in Christ and there for us through the exercise of his divine power. But he requires us to believe, to have the faith that starts small and when it meets the hurdles and the challenges that continues to believe, continues to trust, continues to grow. And the Lord loves to hear his people seeking him. He loves to see his people persisting in prayer because it shows their trust 
and their dependence upon him. Now, of course, God is sovereign. He does what pleases him. You know, we cannot change his mind. Prayer doesn't change us, and God uses the prayer of his people to bring about his secret counsels. But, you know, there is something really simple in this whole matter which helped me just to clarify my own thoughts. You know, if God commands us to pray, we should do it. If God says to be persistent in prayer, we should do it. Prayer is not optional for the Christian, it's required. And regardless of of whether prayer does any good, which of course it does, the fact that God commands us to pray means we must pray. The Lord God of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all things, commands us and invites us to make our requests known. Do you know, when you start to realize that, you realize the immense value and privilege of prayer. The God of the universe invites you to bring your praise and petitions to him. You know, we pray to glorify God, but we also pray to receive the benefits of prayer from his hand. It is our privilege, as one has said, to bring the whole of our finite existence into the glory of his infinite presence we have been given all blessing and promise in the lord jesus i wonder do we understand what is happening when we pray and who we are coming to when we pray my dear friends we may never know the full promise or blessedness of god until we learn persistence in prayer and we must never try and minimize the force of the words of Jesus here. The Lord Jesus wants his people to be confident in the power of God so that they pray for marvelous things to happen. And he promises that when they pray in this way, trusting him, he will appear for them. It might not be exactly as they anticipated, but he will appear. History proves the truth of that. He wants his people to pray and trust even for what seems impossible. You know, prayer is the most powerful force at our disposal, and with humble boldness, we come to the throne of grace. I told this illustration before, but George Muller, prince of intercessors, he's been called, he began to pray for a group of five friends. Five friends. After five years, one of them came to Jesus Christ. After 10 years, two more of them came to Christ. He prayed for 25 years and the fourth man was saved. And for the fifth, he prayed until the time of his death and the fifth friend came to Christ a few months after he died. And for that fifth friend, he prayed 52 years. Perseverance. If we really believed in the power of God, the necessity of prayer, how different our own prayer times would be, how much more engagement there would be in our prayer together as a fellowship. And friends, it's, it's, it's a battle. The enemy doesn't want us to pray. He wants us to be lethargic and apathetic and haphazard. And we can fall into the trap of, you know, superficial prayers or vain prayers and Really, we've got to ask ourselves, do we really believe that God can do great things in our circumstances? Do we really believe that he can transform Penzance? Do we really believe that he can use even a little church like us? 
You know, often we can pray for things and we know that they're right things to pray for, but we don't really believe that God can do it. We pray for things and maybe actually we don't really want the answer because it might make us a bit too uncomfortable. We fail to realize that where God really wants to reveal his power is through persistent prayer. When was the last time, friends? When was the last time for me when we saw prayer answered, some mountain moved into the sea, as it were, through persistence in prayer? As a church, what are we asking God for that can only be accomplished by his power? Have we asked him to give us an impact upon the nations such that he alone gets the glory? These are the prayers you will answer. Jeremiah 33, 3. You should memorize this verse, dear friends. Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. The command to pray, call to me. And then the answer promised, I will answer you. Faith encouraged, I will show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Our responsibility is to trust this Savior, trust this God, pour out our hearts to him. And the Savior, as he withers this fig tree, he demonstrates such power that we can know our God is all-powerful. Are we not weary, friends, of a church which seems so powerless, of a people without power, weary of not seeing the hand of God in a mighty way, how we need to pursue the Lord and to persist, to keep crying, keep knocking, keep interceding, because our God really is able. Let me say again, if you're here this morning, and you have nothing but leaves, that you've got no fruit because you don't know Jesus Christ, may God show you the desperate danger that you're in. That you're dead in trespasses and sins, that you are facing condemnation, and you need to be rescued by the one who has the power over death, Jesus Christ. It is only by abiding in him that you will be saved and fruitful to the glory of God. You need to hear that warning this morning. For those of us who know the Lord, sometimes verses like these, they can be hard because, you know, we just feel as though we fall so far short in terms of believing prayer. Now, I'm challenged in my own heart. Is there fruit in my life? Is there the fruit of this persistent prayer? Is it evident in my life? Do I really believe and trust in the Lord and his power when I pray? And I'm praying for myself and I'm praying for you and for us as a church that the Lord would make us fruit-bearing Christians faithful to persist in prayer. And that even this year, even in this year, next year, whenever God pleases, that we would see his power demonstrated in this place. That we would see his power manifest in our lives, in the fellowship, and even around the world, that his name might be glorified. You see, this Jesus, who withers the fig tree, is the Son of God and the Lord of glory. And friends, we approach the great God in his name, and we plead only him, his merit, his precious blood that was shed, all those things as we come to the throne of grace and as we come in Christ, we can know that God hears and that he will answer and who knows what he may yet do. Don't give up, friends. Keep persisting. Keep praying. There is mighty power at work. Amen.